in Romans. This is going to be part seven. So the first couple chapters really are much more of just getting a broad picture of what's to come, right? Um, so then Paul starts discussing what, so the first few chapters are going to be about justification. So he's going to start kind of explaining why we need justification and what righteousness is versus what unrighteousness is, what pagans believe and do, what Jews believe and do. Um, and so Paul then makes a case saying that they are basically all going to be coming under God's condemnation because they deserve it. They're worthy of it. Not because God is a wrathful, vengeful God, but because he is a holy, just, and perfect God that condemnation must come, right? Because it's according to the truth, right? It's according to each individual's works, right? And while if you, if you, if you um, try to obtain righteousness by works, you're going to find that you're failing and that you can't, right? And so he's going to, Paul is going to make the case that works that the pagans do, works that the Jews do, they don't get you righteousness at all. And moreover, he says, there's really no partiality with God. Even though the Jews might be the chosen ones, they are still under condemnation. And remember, there's sort of a principle, and the principle is God gives to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And so he first gives them the gospel, right? And then he first gives them the blessings, and then he first gives them the cursings, right? And so we as Gentiles can't be upset if we, we can't say, well, we'll take the gospel and the blessings without taking the cursings, right? We, we kind of can't be offended if we get cursed too. So he kind of makes that, makes that kind of claim. Um, so that puts us at verse 11, right? We should be at verse 11. So we talked last week, Isaiah 41 and 2 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So she will receive double for all of her sins, and that will happen in the tribulation. Cry to her, because her warfare has ended. The warfare had come from God judging Israel, a double portion because they refused to do what he had commanded them to do, right? Um, and that's, that's um, you know, the principle that to whom much is given, much will be required. And that's from Luke 12, 48. So the Jews are a covenantal and chosen people. Um, therefore, they have they received the Bible, right? Basically, they received God's word. The Jews, every writer in the Bible, Hebrew and New Testament scripture, is written by a Jewish person, right? Um, obviously, Christ was Jewish, so God chose the Jews to be the light to the world, so he requires more of them, right? So failure to fulfill their greater responsibility means that they will have a more severe judgment and punishment. And that is what Jacob's trouble is. The day of the Lord, the, seven, the tribulation, those are all the same thing. Jacob's trouble, it's God actually judging Jews first, and then he judges the Gentiles. And we're going to, you know, if you were to study the Revel, book of Revelation, that's generally what it is. He, these first few years are judgment of Israel, and then it gets to all the others. So, so verse 10, 
details. Then, so it goes from, goes from gospel, curses, blessings. So verse 10, read verse 10 if you would, of uh, chapter 2. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. All right, so the, that covenant that God had made with Israel mandates that the blessings will go to Israel first, go to them first, right? Remember we talked, in, I think it was the first or second week, we talked about Ephesians 2. And Ephesians 2 is that relationship between Jewish covenants and Gentile believers, right? That, that there's a relationship there. Because God made four unconditional covenants with the Jews, right? The, the, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, uh, I'm sorry, the Abrahamic covenant, which consists of land, seed, worldwide blessings. So the Abrahamic covenant is like an overall covenant. And within that, it gets reiterated under the land covenant, right? The land covenant is the land of Israel, all that, the Canaan, right? And then the Davidic covenant would be the seed. So we have land, seed, worldwide blessing. The seed is that the Davidic covenant would be that Christ, the Messiah, would come from David, would sit on David's throne, David being from the tribe of Judah. And then the new covenant is the blessing, right? The worldwide blessing where all the spirit we pour down on all people and it would dwell in their hearts, not in a temple, right? So land, seed, worldwide blessing is Abrahamic covenant and the other covenants all fall under that. But there's separate times and separate places and separate sort of uh, ceremonies that take place between God and Israel. And then there's a fourth, the, the other covenant, um, I'm sorry, the fifth covenant is for the Jews and that's the Mosaic covenant, right? The Mosaic law. But that was conditional. It was only for the Jews, and Christ rendered it inoperative because He went and fulfilled it. He didn't just say, "No, we don't need it anymore." He fulfilled it, meaning that He lived the perfect, righteous life that was required, and so He fulfilled it. And so our faith in Him, He propitiates the righteousness of the law onto us because of our faith in Him, right? Um, so there was a middle wall of partition before meaning separating the Jews from the Gentiles. When Christ died, that middle wall was torn in two, right? And so we, as a result of that, we can participate in the blessings of Israel's blessings. We're partakers, right? But we're not overtakers. We don't, we don't replace Israel of saying, well, we're, because you rejected the Messiah and we accept the Messiah, therefore we're the ones receiving the blessings. It's not like that at all in scripture. Um, we're still, and we'll get to that in chapters 19 and 11, um, Paul says, well, he'll ask the question, well, what of Israel then? What happened to them? What, what do we do now that they've rejected the Messiah? What happens? And he'll kind of go step by step through that. Um, and he'll talk about the olive tree and being grafted in and all those things. Um, let's see, any, any comments or thoughts with, with that so far? So Gentile believers will not participate in the physical blessings, right? So when it says land, right, the land, when will the land covenant be fulfilled? That's a question I have for you. To, the, millennial. the millennial kingdom, right? So Christ will come down to the earth. He'll reign from Jerusalem. And is, from Jerusalem, he will, they will have, you know, Jerusalem will be the highest city in the world. So there's going to be some some geographical changes for sure. Um, but that is that land blessing. They will fulfill that 
promise that God gave Abraham way back with Abraham. I mean, in the, the, the land of Israel right now is just a small fraction of what actually was promised to Abraham. And so in the millennial kingdom, the church will not be participating in the physical aspects of that because we're going to we believe that there's going to be uh, we're going to be glorified right and we're going to be reigning with Christ as administrators but not in Israel not in Israel not in Jerusalem out through the whole world um, and so that's sort of a reward <coughs> that the Gentiles would the Gentile believers of the church <coughs> excuse me the church would have is that they're going to reign as co-reigners with Christ him the, the king of kings but the the Gentiles that are or the church that received glorification will not be able to sin and they will be administrators of this worldly new world order right that's the true new world order is one there will be one world leader and it will be a perfect man god man christ jesus right so so the the jewish believers or the jews israel itself will be um in their land receiving their covenant for a thousand years the church will be administrators all around and if you if you read every year they the, they go and they give glory to god glory to christ and jerusalem right from all over the world they come back and they do these sort of ceremonies um, as a as a as a way to honor the king of kings in jerusalem so the land will be given to Gentile, or I'm sorry, given to the Jews. The Gentiles have nothing to do with the land, but they have something to do with the blessings, right? The new covenant, um, the seed, the Davidic covenant will be the fulfillment of Christ on Israel or in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning as king for a thousand years. The land will be fulfilled. The, the new covenant would be our blessing because we receive the Holy Spirit within us where we don't need, we don't need to be taught as as we were right we don't we're going to have the the law written on our hearts in that way the holy spirit will be indwelling us that's what the new covenant is it's a blessing a spiritual blessing of being indwelled so the new covenant allows will be fulfilled when the church gets raptured and at the end of the seven year period it will then then we will be administrators with christ co-heirs with christ of this new world order a real world order right the way god always intended it to be Yeah. I can't even like bring that back up. Yeah. I'm thinking, I'm thinking I can't do it. I can't. I, that's I can't why I said I'll be like the <laughs> shoveling guy, you know, <laughs> whatever. Well, I'll dig that ditch over there, you know, whatever. Sure. <laughs> that's right. Well, so that's the hope, but that's the hope, right? We, yeah. we, we will not be able to sin anymore. <clears throat> Our new glorified bodies don't have the capacity to sin, right? And so we will, our whole attention, our whole intention will be to glorify God, to glorify Christ. And our, our, we will, so we will administer this, his rule in a perfect manner as well, too. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know how the, the degrees of that, because we are not God, we will not be God. So I don't know the degrees of perfection in that sense, you know, but um, 
that's, that's what it seems to, to mean, is that we are going to be co-heirs. It says it, that we're going to be co-heirs, and some versions say kings, right? Kings and priests with him. Little K, you know, but he will be the king of kings, right? And the Lord of lords, and we will rule his rule, and it says it will be with a rod of iron, because there will be unbelievers yeah. in this millennial kingdom, yeah. and they will ultimately rebel, yeah. right? Satan gets less, so in that thousand, I mean, we're kind of going on tangent here, but <laughs> thousand years is perfect governance, right? Perfect God-man is governing the world perfectly, and man still rebels, and that's proof that the per you can't have the perfect government. Government will not save you. The perfect ruler or the perfect leader will not save you. So we go through, you know, communist or totalitarian tribalism. Then we go to democracy and we go to a republic. Then we're going to back to communism. And so, you know, all these forms of government don't work. Even when we have Christ, the perfect king with perfect administrators, the heart of man will still rebel. Satan gets loosed. He forms a battle, and that's where the final battle is, right? That final one where Satan gets then cast into the lake of fire. And it's never a matter of like, ooh, I wonder who's going to win. You know, it's never, it's never anything like that. It's always, God always wins, but it's always his will. Okay. Where do we go from here? <laughs> Verse 11. Okay, so... Okay, well, let me just say, in summary, Romans 1 and 2 describe the th three things that go to the Jew first, the gospel, tribulation, anguish, and then glory, honor, and peace, right? Um, so the proclamation of the gospel, the distribution of punishment, and then the distribution of blessings uh, for good. That's kind of the three things that, that Paul is describing. There's another principle, and that's verse 11, um, that that God is, or that Paul is revealing with God. So read verse 11. For God does not show favoritism. Right, so there's no partiality with God. He will punish sin and reward righteousness whether or not you're a Jew or a Gentile, right? The only difference is who gets it first, basically, right? That's kind of what happens. Obviously, showing partiality would show corruption, right? And bad judgment. If you showed some kind of partiality, it's a corrupt judgment. Um, so we're gonna, he's actually going to detail this in the next few verses, 12 through 16. And he's going he's gonna to describe it in the term law, right? Because we, we, that should lead us to say, well, wait, Gentiles don't have the law. They've got the other covenants to share in the blessings, but they don't have the Mosaic covenant. So how does the Gentile know that he's guilty? And how can God condemn him for a law that he doesn't know? Right? That's, that's kind of the question that Paul is kind of pushing you to, to ask. Um, but we have already sort of touched on that in the sense that you don't need the law to tell you that you're a sinner. You are without excuse. You can actually look up and see the heavens declare the glory of God, right? You, and you should respond positively to that. So you don't necessarily need the law to tell you that there's something that you should glorify and honor. Um, and frankly, just, and so what if, what did we talked about? What did the sinners do? What did we do? We take the things of the incorruptible God and we corrupt them, right? We take God whom we can't see and we want to worship something, 
some kind of idol, right? And idolatry, the, one of the first steps of idolatry is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality falls and then kind of tumbles upon itself, right? And goes into homosexuality and all kinds of crazy things until they have such a debased mind and their, their thoughts are, are um, what's the word that he uses? Um, uh, what is it? Not debased mind, something confounded thinking. What was it? Depraved mind, depraved thinking, right. In the sense that that, um, that idolatry, that desire to worship something is, in bed, is inbred in you. And you cannot fill the void. And so when you try to fill the void, you fill it with an idolatry, an idolatrous thing. You create a creation, or you worship the creation, or you create a religion, or you create a worldview, or a point of view, or whatever, that ultimately will lead to sexual immorality, sexual immorality, starts that cycle that way and then it becomes so bad that your mind is depraved and debased that you just God says okay now's the result you're gonna live the results of that depravity right there you go and that's kind of where I mean we could see our culture easily in that right okay so God is no respecter of persons um, so verse 12 answers that question if he's no respecters of persons the Jews have the law. What are the Gentiles? How are the Gentiles going to be judged? So read verse 12, if we would. For all who, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without hope. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, so both people groups are going to receive divine wrath, right? They will face God's final judgment at some point in the future, and it is in that seven-year tribulation. We see law mentioned four times here, right, in this verse. Um, so when he says the, the, the definitive article, is talking about the Mosaic law, right? Because the Jews will be judged on the basis of this law because it had been given to them, right? Um, but the, the basis of judgment for the Gentiles um, will be based on a law that's described as sort of the principle of law, right? The principle of law. And we know this, the Mosaic law was never, never pertained to the Gentiles, right? If you wanted to be, obtain righteousness as a Gentile, you'd have to go be a proselyte into a, to be a Jew. But even then, and we touched on this before, it was always by faith. The, the doing the works of the, of the offerings and the sacrifices and all these things was always by faith that God would receive them, right? It's not a matter of just going through the motions. It's a matter of doing them that God would be pleased and receive your heart for them, right? Uh, all through the Gospels, Christ says it's, it's your heart. It's your intention, not just the action, right? If you, if you look on a woman with lust, you're guilty of... of Adultery. If you call a person a fool, you're guilty of murder, right? So it's always the heart that is the matter of the things, right? Um, the Gentiles don't have the Mosaic Law, but they have this principle of law. Um, they will be judged according to those standards. So, so ignorance of the law did not make them or save them, right? And we had that discussion that if, if, they could, if a person could be saved without hearing the gospel... Right, because they didn't ever hurt, they couldn't be held accountable for rejecting the gospel. We should we should never evangelize people, right? We should never share the gospel because we're we're judging them to hell, basically, right? So that's clearly not the case. Is that 
that they will still be judged apart from knowledge of the gospel. They will be judged on their own unrighteousness according to the principle of law. Um, so we, just like the Jews were not going to be saved by obedience to the Mosaic law, the Gentiles will not be, be saved to follow the principle of law either. All it does is just, it just lets you know that there is righteousness. There is unrighteousness, there is good, there is bad, there is true, there is false, there is right, there is wrong, right? The law is just an exposure, it just lets you know there's, there's lines, right? But the law is powerless to save. All it lets you know is you're really unrighteous and you need a savior, right? That's basically the point of the law. So the law is actually really good for us too, because we can recognize our need for a savior, we can recognize that we are unrighteous according to the law, without the law, we wouldn't know necessarily how unrighteous we are, but we're nonetheless unrighteous, right? Um, okay, so the Mosaic law will, Paul's basic point is that the Mosaic law will not be an issue of judgment um, to those who have not lived under it, right? So God, at that time, when he judges the people groups, He's not going to judge the Gentiles on the basis of the Mosaic law, right? He's going to judge them on the principle of law. He's going to judge the Jews on the basis of the Mosaic law. And all, all of us and them will be found guilty, right? Um, in fact, we're going to see, so verses 14 and 16, we're going to see how he's going to judge them, judge them all. Okay, so let's see. So God holds man accountable in accordance with the responsibilities they actually have, not which they don't have, right? So when he, when, when Paul says God is no, um, um, what does he say? When God is not a respecter of persons, he will not be unfair to that people group, right? Um, he will not show, he will, they will each be fairly assessed to where you have no excuse. Okay, so let's, now let's figure out what is, what is um, a law-abiding person, per se? Read verse 13, if you would. To read from the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Okay, so it is the doers of the law who are justified, and that in does involve obedience to faith that we already talked about, right? We're hearing the word of God right now. Jews every Sun, uh, every Saturday in the synagogue are hearing the word of God. Right? They are read. The Torah is read to them every Saturday, so they are hearers of the word. Right? Um, but hearing the word does not make you saved or does not make you righteous. Right? So on Judgment Day, the hearer of the Jew who hears the word of the Mosaic Law will not be declared righteous. So he, even though Jews possess the law, the law was given to them, they hear the law, they're not declared righteous just because they possess it and they hear it. They have to be doers of the law, right? Um, so let's, let's, he's now going to do a side note of explaining what a doer of the law is. So read 14 and 15 if you would. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by law, they are a law for themselves, even though 
they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences, and bearing witness, and their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. Okay, so what, what does that say? Anybody can stab at that? They don't have they the law. They naturally know. I mean, you just know. Your conscience tells you when you're doing something wrong. Right. Yeah. So we have a conscience, right? We, yeah. if we're, obviously we're honest with ourselves. We know. <laughs> we know, yeah. right? And we, we're also brought up in a Western culture that does have some biblical Christian values, you know, for sure. So we certainly know. We're not under the law, but our conscience tells us for sure. Um, and so, like we're saying, God is going to judge each people group according to the law that they possess. And the Gentiles are without excuse because they have a law written in their hearts, right? They have a law to themselves because they know, Gentiles know that murder is wrong. Pagans know that murder is wrong. Rape is wrong. Certain things are wrong. Stealing is wrong, right? It's like common, common. we'd call common sense, but everybody knows these things, right? That in, in itself is evidence of the law written on their hearts, a principle of law. Um, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So their conscience also bears witness. And then their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, right? So um, our conscience, our conscience is not perfect though, right? Our conscience is not righteous. Our conscience is skewed as well. But even in our skewed consciousness, we know, like, ah, <laughs> I shouldn't take that. Or I, you know, I, we, I can say I'm a professional rationalizer, you know, I can rationalize everything that I do all day long, you know, and my conscience is like, really? You know, you have to really sort of, you know, be honest with yourself because we could figure out any way to make ourselves self-righteous pretty quickly, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, you know, like I said, I've got years of practice, so. Um, okay, so the principal law is the presence of its conscience in within the heart of man. It's an instinctive sense of right and wrong, right? So the, the most atheistic, agnostic person still has a sense of right and wrong. And they still want justice. But they, on what basis does the atheist have justice or truth or anything that has any, any concrete value, right? If, athe if atheism is true, then everything is random meaning that there are no concrete laws. It's all relative to what you say, relative to what you say, relative to what I say. Well, if I say I want to kill you, who's to say that's wrong, you know? But somebody, they know that it's wrong, right? Okay, so and we, and we know that most, most tribe, if not all tribes all around the world have a sense of a morality there, right? Written in the heart of man for sure. And like we said, when they respond positively, they look up and they see there's, there's some kind of justice or some kind of righteousness, and I look up and I see that there's something bigger, a supreme being, your inquiry, your positive response to it, God is a, is a rewarder of those who diligently yeah. seek him, right? And however way he does it, he will cause someone to go there or cause that person to go somewhere and hear the mm -hmm. gospel, right? Um, let's see. So your conscience is actually sitting on you as a judge, right? It is judging. It's like those, and we always laughed at that, Tom and Jerry, the, the, you know, the, the 
angel and demon on one side, you know, and you were like, man, that is very true. <laughs> that is very true, right? Because even Paul says it in himself, right? He says, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who the heck can help me? You know, and that's Paul. Paul was like the, you know, the Pharisees of Pharisees. And so it's, it's pleasant to hear that he's an honest person too, right? So, okay. Um, so Paul is announcing that even though the Gentiles don't have the Mosaic law, they are a law unto themselves, right? Okay, are we pretty, pretty clear on that? Um, I want to just briefly touch on the Bible knowledge commentary uh, talks about conscience. And conscience is an important, so I'm going to quote what it says. It says, conscience is an important part of human nature but it is not an absolutely trustworthy indicator of what is right, right? It's not perfect. One's conscience can be good, it can be clear, but it can also be guilty, um, corrupted, weak, and seared. So all people need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ so that the blood of Christ might cleanse their consciences. Let's look at Hebrews 9.14. So even in our law that we possess in our hearts, our consciences are not perfect. Like I said, we're, we rationalize anything, you know. Because we can sear our conscience, right? When right. we, when we um, uh, what is it, quench the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit within us, we can quench the Holy Spirit from convicting us of our sin. The conviction is uncomfortable, we don't want the conviction, but the conviction is what pushes you to be more righteous, right? To be more sanctified. And so we should be welcoming it. And so that's actually one of the aspects that James talked about. Count it all joy when you go through various trials and tribulations, because it's those that challenges that that motivation to make you be a better Christian, a Christ follower, right? Okay, who's got Hebrews 9 14? Right, so our conscience can motivate you to do good works. We talk about that. You go save the tree, the cat out of the tree, or help an old lady across the street. Those are good works, and our conscience says, "Oh, good job, buddy. Way to go! You know, you're a great person." But it says Christ purges our conscience of that, of those dead works, and 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 you only have good works when you're alive in Christ. Right? No amount of works mean anything when you're dead in Christ. They're nice. We should do them. People should do them, but they, we shouldn't expect that there's any value to God from them, right? And even our, and when we are alive in Christ, even our silly works are glory to Him. Things that we don't see as these big, grandiose works, things that He just has us to do are glorifying Him, and, he, and He's happy with them. He's pleased with them. If you'd flip back um, or flip over one chapter, 10.22, Hebrews 10.22, We'll just see that our, our conscience is also guilty. Ten twenty. Yeah, just read ten twenty two if you would. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right. So that when Christ died, a lot happened to us, right? When the moment 
that you know Christ is the high priest. He cleanses from all sin. He washes us, right? He, he does so many things, and it's really a great study for us to understand all the work that is done for you personally when you become alive, right? When you become born again, all these things take place in you that you once were, and it's a fantastic study for us to just know, like it says, assurance of your salvation, because even your conscience is evil and corrupted, but there's still goodness there, because it tells you that there's good and bad, but he washes you and cleanses you of all that, that stuff, so. Okay, yeah, we good? Okay, so after Paul explains what being a doer of the law is, he continues verse 16 from verse 12, that everything will come out clearly on Judgment Day. So go back to Romans 2.16. And just read that if you would. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel Declared. That's my gospel. So that's a scary proposition. The secrets of men will be judged by God, right? Judged by Christ, right? Um, he's not going to base the judgment on, on the Mosaic law, but on your secrets, right? The basis of principle law according to the standard. So Paul made a case already. The law is a law unto the Jews. The Mosaic law is a law unto the Jews, a principle of man. But we will be judged not according to how well we do them. We will be judged according to what? God judges the secrets of men by who? Jesus, Jesus Christ. So if we're going to be judged, our secrets, our conscience will be judged according to the perfect standard of Christ Jesus. If we're saved, we have received the perfect standards of Christ Jesus. Clearly not because of anything we've done or what can do, but that's the benefit, right? That's God's grace and mercy. The grace is him imputing the righteousness to us. The mercy is not giving us what we actually deserve, the judgment, right? We could see both of those taking place in one time. It's, it's just fantastic, right? Okay, so who, so who is going to be the judge at this trial? Christ Jesus himself, it says in John 5, that he's going to be the judge of those. And if you have a personal relationship with him, he knows you, right? right. He says, Joe, come on over, buddy. You know, I've been talking with you for years. Come on over, right? What a, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? He's the judge according to his righteous standards. Our consciences tell us we're terrible. We need a savior. Our faith puts our... our, uh, our our, our faith puts our lives in the hands of Christ to accomplish that work, right? We're trusting that he will do it and that he has done it. That's all we're doing. We're just saying, I put my faith and trust in you, not in myself, that I will be judged accordingly, right? right. Okay, so uh, another, Alva McLean is a great theologian. Um, he provides a, a, little, a final summary of this sort of whole thing. And just, so he says, man is condemned, one man is condemned by his own self-judgment. So as a moralist, we, we think we're self-righteous people. And our culture says, I'm a good person. I'm not a Hitler. I'm not a Stalin. I'm not whatever, right? But man will be self-judged self because he thinks as such compared to Christ Jesus, right? So that's one. 
Two, he will be condemned by the judgment of God because of four things. These four things are truth. God will judge according to truth, not fairy tales and not skews of truth, right? God will judge according to works, right? I mean, all works are dead works apart from being born again. And then God will judge impartially, meaning there's not going to be any corruption in, in the judgment. It's going to be perfect in applying to all people groups. And then fourth, God will judge the secrets of men. So those are, that's how Alva McLean sort of um, summarizes this part. So, oh my gosh. Um, the next section, so this first section was for the guilt of the Gentiles, right? Mm -hmm. So we're at 2A1, the, the guilt of the Gentiles. The next section will be the guilt of the Jews. So he's now going to turn to the Jewish world, explaining that they too are guilty and not better off in any way. So he's going to kind of discuss the peril of the Jewish people. Um, but then in chapter 3, he's going to discuss the promises that had been given to them. So just kind of quickly, to get kind of whet your appetite, um, the peril of the Jews, verses 17 through 29. So the peril or the danger of the Jews is that they had the privileges, right? They had very distinct and certain privileges. Um, while they didn't make them righteous, right? It didn't... didn't didn't declare them to be righteous. It just comes from it comes with specific responsibilities. God did choose those people to deliver His message. Um, the Gentiles did not have these privileges, and then therefore they're not responsibility to act upon them, right? And so, so just read verse seventeen, if you would, somebody. Okay, so we see a change. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, O man, right, talking to the pagan world, and now he says, if you, a Jew, call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, but then it says you boast in God, right? Because um, the Jews were resting on the fact that they had the law, right? Um, they received the revelation of God, his direct will, not any other people group did, and they even boasted in that, right? And that's what Zionism is, right? Zionism is this idea that they are the chosen people of God. Uh, God chose them specifically uh, to carry out those things, and so they have this sense of privilege that they boast in it, right? They still boast in it. And that they, really that they alone had the truth, kind of, right? That they alone worshiped the true God and everything else was idolatry. That's the view that they had held. Um, so let's, let's end there. That kind of just gets us, because we're going to start going on and how, and how they failed, basically. Even though they boasted and they had received all these privileges, they failed. And quite frankly, we would have too, right? Any people, any people group would have. There's no sin is sin is sin. It's just that God does hold them accountable to it. So, okay, any any final comments or thoughts or anything? No why questions, Jerry? <laughs> no, I really like the why questions. I don't have the answers, but you, Jen. Well, but the, that's what I mean. The why questions make us all think. It's just having the answer is very hard to come up. But the why questions do make us go, hmm, 
what is the mind of God to do such and these things? And while we don't have the answers, it does, ha does help us to think of higher things, right? And that's really what we want to do. And I think asking the why questions are very, very good. And God does, in my, in my experience, God does answer it. But it's usually in ways that you don't even think about. You know, it's like I can, I can recall times where I have questions and say, why God? And it would be weeks later, and I heard a conversation, somebody else had a conversation, and it answers that question, you know? And it's like such a strange thing. So, Okay, let's pray. So please continue to ask, ask questions. Father God, we bow our hearts, Lord, before you, Lord, just uh, grateful, grateful that you chose us, that you... You breathed life into us. We were dead, and you chose us before the foundations of the world to, to trust you. We're thankful that we responded positively to your light and that you, by your mercy and by your grace, imputed righteousness to us, that we don't deserve it, we can't earn it, yet, yet we have it and we possess it. So, Lord, our reasonable service is to present our bodies back to you, present our minds back to you, because we have received, received such mercies and such grace from you and all the spiritual blessings that you've given us, our response is to just be reasonable and give back to you. And so we just give back to you. But Lord, help us to do that. We don't even know how to do that. So we ask, Lord, we, like your word says, we believe, help us in our unbelief to be sanctified more and to grow more and to be more like you. Uh, so that we can present to you a, a, a living and holy sacrifice in ourselves, Lord. Lord, we pray for this church service that be pleasing to you as a corporate body. We pray that as we go throughout this week, we would honor you with what we say, with what we do, with what we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.